When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. I have such an exciting episode for us today. I truly cannot wait for y'all to hear it. Mid-December last month, just before the holiday season of 2022, there were a lot of headlines around scientists achieving a nuclear fusion breakthrough. The breakthrough happened at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, and what was so exciting about this breakthrough is that the lab was able to achieve a reaction called ignition, a reaction that produced more energy than is used. This generated so much attention and so much excitement because it's kind of like the energy breakthrough of the century. This is so exciting because we now have a more clear path to a new source of renewable energy. From the scientific perspective, this was really exciting too, because this was the first time that Einstein's equation was actualized in a laboratory setting. So it means a lot for the energy world, it means a lot for the scientific world, and as a society, it makes sense that we were so excited and interested in learning about it. With all that being said, I am so deeply honored and humbled and excited to share this conversation with you today. We are speaking with Dr. Tammy Ma. She is a lead scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory's National Ignition Facility. Dr. Tammy Ma is a plasma physicist at the National Ignition Facility. She leads experiments that are aimed at achieving fusion ignition. So this breakthrough is truly her life's work. And she is really excited to not only share the significance of this breakthrough, but next steps with us and also really explain what her team is looking forward to, what the world needs to do moving forward so that we can see this as a really scalable energy technology. So today's conversation is perhaps the most thorough, easily understandable, digestible bit of information that you can find on this really incredible recent nuclear breakthrough. Dr. Tammy Ma earned her bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering from Caltech in 2005, and then from the University of California at San Diego in 2008, she earned a master's degree, and also from UC San Diego, she earned her PhD in 2010. She completed her postdoc at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab and then became a staff scientist there in 2012. Dr. Tammy Ma was truly so gracious with her answers and with the time that she took to answer all of my silly questions as well throughout this conversation. And I feel like this is exciting, perhaps from the listener perspective, if I can speak for you. I feel like this is also exciting because we don't have a lot of popular media that's diving deep into scientific discovery on a regular basis. There seemed to be so many headlines, and I feel like every person in my life sent me a news article talking about the nuclear fusion breakthrough in December. And what was so exciting about this conversation with Tammy is that she allowed me to ask not only my silly little questions and perhaps the questions that you're questioning as a listener, but it gave me such a 
feel for what it means to be a part of these really significant historical moments and to see such an incredible milestone reached during our lifetime, during Tammy's tenure, during a time where her team is slowly but surely progressing towards the next major revelation when it comes to nuclear energy. At this point, I just want to say thank you so, so much to Dr. Tammy Ma for joining me for this conversation. Thank you to the team at Lawrence Livermore National Lab for making this happen. And it was a huge pinch me moment, a very full circle moment for me. This is a conversation that I could only dream of hosting, and I'm so thankful to be able to share it with you. I know that you will really, really enjoy it. And I know that you will learn something. So if you do really enjoy this episode, if you find it valuable, please go ahead and share it with a friend, share it with your family group chat, share it with anyone who is excited to talk to you about the nuclear fusion breakthrough in December. I am so, so proud of this episode, and I know that you'll find a lot of value in it. If this is your first time listening to the show, or if you're even a reoccurring listener, just make sure that you are subscribed to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, wherever you're looking for it. And then all of my social links are down below if you want to get in touch. I really want to know what you think of the episode. With that, let's jump in to breaking down everything you've ever wanted to know about the recent nuclear fusion breakthrough with Dr. Tammy Ma of Lawrence Livermore's National Ignition Facility. Enjoy. I'm excited to talk to you about the news that seemed to break the internet just before the holidays. I'm excited to really set the scene with you a little bit about what was so incredible about the nuclear fusion breakthrough that we learned about in December. I understand that the breakthrough was so exciting because the lab was able to reproduce the power of the sun in a laboratory setting. Is that correct? Actually, more than just reproducing the power of the sun, but really being able to get fusion reactions going so robustly that we could get more energy out than we put in. And this is the holy grail of fusion research. We've been working on this for over 60 years, and it really sets the stage for future applications, both for research towards fusion as a potential energy source, but all kinds of other really cool science that we can do too. Thanks for explaining that a little bit more. So I'd love to talk about this point that you mentioned, what's so exciting is being able to see more energy produced from the reaction than is put in. Why is that so significant? Well, because this is the holy grail of fusion research. The whole idea behind fusion is the conversion of mass to energy. This is Einstein's equation. And we know, theoretically, on paper, it can be done. Um, and Einstein wasn't wrong. And so this is the very first time we have done it in the laboratory in a controlled fashion, showing that we can actually harness the power of the sun and have it in the laboratory. We can, we can do it ourselves. And so that's why this is so significant. Fusion researchers have been trying for so long, but it's an incredibly hard problem. We always knew it was, and to have a breakthrough is, is, you know, just wonderful for science. It's exciting because like you mentioned and how you alluded to, this is seeing science that was for the most part very theoretical in actuality, which is really exciting from a scientific perspective. And we're not even going to talk yet about like what this means for the energy world, but I'd love to talk to you about what it took to get to that milestone of finally producing more energy than was input into the reaction. From my understanding, there was a breakthrough relatively recently in August where about 70% of the 
energy looking to be produced from the laser reactions was produced. So I'd love to talk about that a little bit. Like, what does it mean to really get to the end? What were like these final days of reaching the breakthrough? That's a great question. And Ashley, let me take you back a little bit farther back, right? You know, so we, we've always known the sun works. It works by fusion. We knew it was a reaction that works. And we were, as humans, just trying to think of ways for how we could, you know, replicate that here on Earth, right? And so the laser was invented in 1960. And basically two days after that, a brilliant guy named John Knuckles came up with the idea of like, oh, hey, maybe we could use lasers to actually make fusion happen. Here at Livermore, we've had a series of bigger and bigger lasers built over time, over decades, both because as we built a laser, did experiments, we understood we needed to go bigger, but also that was accompanied by the advancement of laser technology. We had the capability to actually build larger lasers. And that was accompanied by the progression in computational power and computational prowess. So not just bigger computers to do bigger simulations, but also new techniques, supercomputing, et cetera. And so all of that comes together and you are exactly right. Um, last August, we had already a breakthrough shot where we were able to get 70% target gain. So 70% of the energy out that we put in. And between then and this big breakthrough this last December, what happened was we were able to, through uh, just improvements to the laser, turn up the laser energy just a little bit more, just 7% more. And that had to be accompanied by small changes in the target as well to be able to efficiently use that laser energy. But then that is really what pushed us over to the edge to get you know much higher amounts of energy out than we put in. And so it's this gradual progression. That's what science is. And it was really cool to actually see that it science works. That's really exciting. And I have to ask you perhaps a little bit of a frivolous question, but you've alluded a little bit to the computational power that we are now seeing in the laboratories, the lasers. In a lot of the headlines that I saw around the breakthrough in December, a lot of the headlines were accompanied with nuclear fusion breakthrough accomplished with 192 lasers. And there was all these notes about the lasers. So I'm wondering if you could also set the scene a little bit of how this actually happens in a laboratory. What are you looking at? If anything, is this all done on computers? What does the laboratory look like when you're actually trying to create a nuclear fusion reaction? Sure. So the laser that we use is called the National Ignition Facility. It is the world's largest, most energetic laser. We call it laser singular, but really it's actually laser plural, plural. It's like you said, 192 separate lasers. And we're not talking about your little laser pointer that you have at home. Each one of these lasers alone is one of the most energetic in the world. And we're combining 192 of them. So imagine our lasers are so big that as they are getting amplified up in energy, the lasers are about 40 by 40 centimeters. So not a little laser pointer dot. Imagine a huge amount of laser energy spread out over 40 by 40 centimeters. And the reason the lasers have to be this big is because we have to actually spread out that energy so that they don't damage the optics as they're traveling through, right? The lenses, the mirrors, the um, amplifying uh, glass that they travel through. And then what they do is these lasers bounce back and forth across our facility, which is the size of three football fields, side by side, 10 stories tall. And it's because we have to contain all of these giant optics. And they bounce back and forth four times, getting amplified up, increasing in energy. 
And then they all get focused down around this target chamber. So a huge spherical vacuum chamber that is 10 meters or 30 feet in diameter. We're gonna send half our laser beams in through the top of that chamber and half through the bottom. So 96 up top, 96 at bottom. Each laser now gets focused down to about the diameter of two human hairs. Quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Green Chef. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well with dinners that work for you, not the other way around. Green Chef has options for every lifestyle, keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, and gluten-free. I have tried the vegetarian, the vegan, and the Mediterranean, all really delicious and kind of customizable. Green Chef recipes aim to be sustainable. They feature organic produce, premium proteins, and sustainably sourced ingredients. And this is my favorite. Green Chef is the only meal kit that is both carbon and plastic offset. They offset 100% of their carbon footprint as well as 100% of the plastic in every single Green Chef box. With these offsets and with Green Chef's very thoughtful packaging, you're reducing your food waste by at least 23% versus traditional grocery shopping on your own. I mentioned that I've tried a couple of the different Green Chef options. My personal favorite is the Mediterranean, and I really like Green Chef on weeks where I feel a little short on time. So sometimes it's really nice when I'm traveling, but a lot of the time I like Green Chef when I'm just having a hectic work week. It's really, really nice to have a box of ingredients that I like and that I choose and that I trust organic, sustainably sourced ingredients just come to my door and it helps me kind of take a break. There's something really calming to me about just chopping, putting together a meal, something that really adds something special to the end of a hectic workday. So a Green Chef box is perfect when not only are you in a time crunch, but you're looking for something to alleviate and de-stress during your busy week. If you've been curious about meal kits, I have to say Green Chef is the one to try, again, for all of the sustainability reasons I mentioned, but also because I feel like there is so much variety. You don't have to have the same kind of meal every single week, and it is just so, so convenient to have delicious, easy recipes supporting a healthy lifestyle. If that was one of your goals in 2023 to get more greens into your diet, Green Chef is a great way to do it. There are some pre-made ingredients, there are some pre-measured sauces, dressings, spices, keeping everything healthy, and it keeps it really, really easy. Also, fun fact, Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh, so there is a really, really wide variety of meal plans to choose from, and there's really something for everyone. Go to greenchef.com slash ecochic60 and use code ecochic60 for 60% off plus free shipping. Again, go to greenchef.com slash ecochic60 and use code ecochic60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. So imagine taking that huge amount of energy density and shrinking it down. And then the lasers are incident on a little target And the target is a little fuel pellet containing our hydrogen fuel, deuterium and tritium fuel, the fusion fuel. And that target sits in the middle of what we call a whole ROM, a canister that is basically going to take the laser energy and convert it to x-ray. So it's an x-ray oven. So like your oven at home, which uses heat to cook something, we're going to use x-rays to basically cook our fusion fuel. So then all the lasers come in through um, little holes on that cylindrical canister, the whole ROM. They irradiate that inside wall, generating very energetic flux of x-rays. The x-rays then start to ablate the surface of the capsule, to blow off the plastic or high-density carbon shell incredibly fast at about 
three, 400 kilometers per second. And then by conservation of momentum, it's, it's like a rocket. You, you blow stuff off so fast, the rest of it wants to compress inwards. And you compress that DT, deuterium tritium fuel in and heat it up to conditions of 100 million degrees Celsius, 100 times denser than lead. And so every time we do one of these experiments, we are the hottest place in the solar system because we actually have to get hotter than the center of the sun. And so we, we initiate fusion. And if we do it right and get enough fusions coming out, then it's ignition, more energy out than we put in. So that's how it all comes together. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much for breaking that down. It didn't occur to me that when you're creating these reactions, you have to be hotter than the sun because that is ultimately the goal. I did not make those connections. That's really wild. Yeah. And we have to be hotter because we're, we're not quite as big as the sun really. Right. And so you have to compensate in other ways. So we, we do actually get hotter than the center of the sun. Wow. This is unbelievable. Thank you so much for setting the scene for us. We talked a little bit about how incredible this breakthrough is for the scientific community, being able to see theory in practice in actuality, but I'd love to switch our lens a little bit and talk about what this nuclear fusion breakthrough means for the energy community. So what this is, is a very first step towards what we call inertial fusion energy, IFE. So you can imagine if you can get more energy out of your target than you put in, right? And if you can dial that up and get quite a bit more energy out than you put in, what you can do is have a self-sustaining system, right? Use that energy to continue running your lasers, to do your, your fusion reactions and, you know, continue that cycle. And if the economics work out, the energy balance, energy economics work out, right? You can also have enough energy to feed out to the grid and use fusion as a power source. It's not like what we've done so far on the NIF means you can just plug us into the grid, right? And make it work. There's still a lot of big challenges that need to be overcome. We have to demonstrate much more energy out than we put in, right? Right now on this last experiment, it was what we call a, a target gain of 1.5. It was three megajoules out for two megajoules of laser energy. And we have to get that number up to gains of 10 or 100. So you can imagine there's still quite a bit of work to do just at that central engine core. In addition, there's a lot of engineering to do. There's reactor design. Um, you have to come up with materials that can withstand the heat and the debris. Um, you know, what is your heat extraction system? There's tritium recovery. So a lot of work that still needs to be done, but we've now shown that it's feasible, right? This, this could work. And next steps are to bring all of those different subsystems together and invest in the overall engineering to make it put energy out on the grid. Yeah, wonderful. I'm glad that you already touched on the challenges because that was one of my major questions for you when I heard this news. After thinking about how exciting it was, of course, the next thing is how do we scale? How can we look at nuclear fusion as a valid source of renewable energy on, again, on a grid scale. And it seems that not only is fusion exciting because it would be an emissions-free source of energy, but also because from the scientific perspective, there is so many players involved. It's not just a matter of folks on your team, on the Livermore team, really working towards that next step with the lasers. There are so many smaller 
uh, discoveries and so much smaller innovation that needs to be done as well from the infrastructure side, from the R&D side that needs to happen. So if you were to look into your crystal ball, what do you feel like, this is a very hard question because this is like the opposite of how science is done, but what would you say is like the next step in really scaling nuclear fusion? I would say the next step in scaling is really maturing all of these technologies that we've demonstrated maybe once or in these individual subsystems, not necessarily at full scale, but maturing the laser technology, the target technology, um, the, the computational technology to a point where we can bring it all together in an integrated system. And right now we're still very much at the fundamental R&D stage. And so we have yet to do it in a coordinated sense where if you're building a power plant, all of the subsystems have to fit together. They all have to work. And there are trade-offs in decisions that you might wanna make, right? So, you know, maybe you have to say, oh, I, I, I can't make my target out of, you know, this material because, it's going to cause a lot of debris later on that, you know, we cannot get rid of, or it makes the, the thermal conversion not as efficient, right? And those are things that we don't necessarily have to think about so much right now in the scientific stage. We just want to make it work, right? Um, and so bringing together all of those different subsystems, I think, is the next important piece for scaling. Yeah, thank you so much for breaking that down. That's really helpful. Again, thinking about how all of these different people and kind of industries have to come together to do great science, really scalable energy work. I'd love to quickly touch on that nuclear often gets a bad rap and nuclear fusion reactions are not the same as the typical nuclear energy that folks typically think of when they're thinking of like nuclear waste sites. So could you just quickly explain to us what is the difference between what your team is aiming to create versus what we typically think of as nuclear energy? Yeah, absolutely. So um, conventional nuclear power plants of today are all fission. So you are taking a heavy element and breaking it down. Um, and through that process, you are liberating energy. And so that is fission. Fission is actually very safe, but of course it does generate um, radioactive waste that we do have to deal with. There have been incidents in the past, right, where we had runaway of these fission reactions and the power plant just generated basically a little more energy than we were ready to contain. Now, fusion, on the other hand, it's really hard <laughs> to get a fusion reaction started. Um, and in fusion, you're taking a light element and fusing it together to make a heavier element through that also releasing energy, right? But fusion um, takes, you have to first input energy into a fusion reaction to get it going. So it's it's inherently safe. You can cut off your original energy source and stop a fusion reaction. There's no such thing as runaway. We do not generate high level nuclear waste. The, the radioactivity that we generate is on the order of um, you know, days, months, kind of just a few years to decay versus the tens, hundreds of thousands of years for fission. That's the main difference in terms of what they are. They're both called nuclear power because we are playing with the nucleus of our atoms. Um, and so that's the overlap, but really they're they're quite different. 
Thanks for breaking that down. Thanks for explaining that because I'm sure that's a question that you probably get asked a lot. I suppose from there, I'd love to hear a little bit about on a personal level, if you allow me, your hopes and dreams for this. So if we were to scale this really quickly, what does this mean for the energy community? How could this how could this technology really impact the way we think about global energy systems? Yeah, so I think, I mean, the benefits of fusion energy, like you've already alluded to, is it is it is clean. It is carbon free just in the reaction. There's no carbon anywhere. It is abundant. And with it, you can have a lot of flexibility in where you locate fusion power plants and the communities that you can actually serve. You're, you're not dependent on geographical restrictions. Like this is where the coal happens to be. This is where the sun happens to shine, right? Um, nuclear fusion could be the key to providing energy equity, right? And it because it's so abundant, you know, it's really a technology you want to deploy everywhere around the world. And besides the fact that it's carbon free, right? So you're not negatively impacting the environment and communities that way. It's so abundant that we can really use it to lift the standard of living for communities worldwide, right? Because we know that those standards are directly related to energy usage. You can look at the plots of developed countries around the world and how much energy they use. So this is really a key to making everybody have a better life and giving them access to technologies that require energy. And furthermore, because this is a brand new ecosystem, a brand new industry, we get to try to build it out in a way that really supports diversity, equity, and inclusion. How do we develop the workforces that can really benefit all different communities? How do we think about siting? Um, how do we think about spin-out technologies as well? Um, and making sure that you know, we do this in a way that is sustainable and, and best for everybody. So that's really, really exciting. You know, on top of that, energy security is a huge issue. How many of our wars have been fought over energy resources, right? Um, probably all of them in, in some sense. And so, you know, I'm sure as human beings, we'll find another reason to fight. But, you know, how, how great would it be that we can make energy abundant enough um, that it's no longer something that causes these geopolitical rivalries? Thank you so much for speaking to not only energy security, but also energy equity. I think very often, like you touched on, we think of renewable energy, perhaps from a Western perspective, as a climate positive resource. We think of renewable energy as a way to lower our financial burden on energy, whatever it may be. But when you look at the rest of the world, there are larger issues than just reducing your emissions, right? In the short term, a lot of other countries in the rest of the world are much more concerned with energy security, energy access. And when we think about truly deploying a new form of energy, it's really about access and equity and making sure that energy is, like you mentioned, secure for the rest of the world. So I think that, unfortunately, I feel like energy equity has been left out of a lot of this news. When we talk about new energy sources, it is really elevating the lives of people globally. So that's my hope and dream. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> I would love to switch gears a little bit. If you're okay, Tammy, I'd love to speak a little bit about 
you and your background uh, because this is your life's work. And I have to imagine that this was a really exciting moment for you, having spent so many years dedicated to the project. So could you talk to me a little bit about your reaction in that moment? I have to imagine also this happened in the middle of the night. Is that correct? That's right. Our facility runs uh, 24-7. You know, we pack in the experiments one after the other. And when the shot goes off is when the shot goes off. So this one happened to go off at one o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I've run many experiments on the NIF, have stayed up all night. Um, this was not one of the ones that I was directly involved in executing. Um, so I didn't actually hear the news until the next morning. And for me, I was about to board a flight to, to fly over to D.C. when my boss called because we were just so excited. Right. And he whispers into the phone that I think we got ignition. Right. And it's a whisper because as scientists, we also want to be so careful. Right. We want to verify that, yes, this actually happened. Right. And, you know, we don't want to we don't want to spread rumors. We don't want to spread any untruth. But we knew like we didn't have the exact number of the energy out yet, but we knew it was a huge, huge shot. And so he called in excitement and I was just so excited at the airport. I did actually burst into tears. Um, it was just like you alluded to, it's something you've been working, you know, your entire career on. And I'm incredibly lucky because, you know, people have been working on this for decades and to have it happen during my tenure is, and to, to witness it in person is just so, so exciting. And then it was just like, just so difficult to then get on a plane where you're cut off from communication for five hours and you're not able to talk about it with anybody. So as soon as I got off the plane, I was back on the phone with Livermore to be like, tell me more, what actually happened? I can't even imagine what you felt like at that moment. I mean, I have to imagine that it was both really exciting. And like you said, because you're disconnected, a little bit surreal. So I'd also love to hear about perhaps times in your career working towards this accomplishment where you were unfortunately let down? What does that feel like? How do you move forward from those really difficult challenges? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, with science, you fail 99 out of a hundred times, right? That is the process of learning. And I wouldn't even call it failure. Um, it's an experiment doesn't go the way you hoped. Maybe, maybe you expected it, but, you know, you're, you're always hoping for this, this huge breakthrough. For us, though, it's such an enormous team that works on this project that it's, it's kind of this shared collective, how do we make progress, right? So maybe we didn't get the highest yield out on this shot, but we learned about symmetry and, you know, the sensitivity we might have to where the laser points and exactly how it delivers or sensitivities to the geometry of the target. And, um, you know, if there's imperfections on the outside surface of the capsule, that impacts, you know, we publish hundreds of papers a year, meaning we are learning a lot and each of those are successes. We're creating little stars in the laboratory. Right. And so maybe it's not one that burns quite as brightly as, you know, we were hoping for, but you're, you're still creating stars and you can also generate conditions similar to what we have inside the cores of giant planets. You can generate supernova in your little target chamber. There's all kinds of experiments that we can do, which are not necessarily fusion ignition. And with each of them, you know, we get to we, we get to bring in new students, train them up, building new diagnostic instruments. You are running new simulation codes. There is always continuous progress, is what I would say. 
kind of just depends on your viewpoint and how you can look at this progress, whether you call it success, failure, learning, or just, you know, science in general. That's a really good glass half full way to look at it. <laughs> because you're right. I mean, you are always learning and putting that perspective that you're always making some progress towards the ultimate goal is really powerful and empowering. Yeah. And the other thing is, I mean, it's it's a little bit like solving puzzles all the time, right? You know, an experiment never ever goes exactly the way you wanted it to. And so the question is, why? And what what changed on this experiment? And why did you get the result that you did? And so it's solving puzzles. It's fun. Yeah, that's exciting. I love that. And I'd love to hear a little bit when we talk about solving puzzles, reaching this big milestone, what are the conversations now with your team that you've had this success? How are you being motivated to move forward? We have achieved ignition, but you can still push our platforms to significantly higher gains. So way more energy out than we put in. Um, and those are both necessary for some of the applications that we want to use these for. Um, but then also we are working to build a new fusion energy program in the U.S. using this approach. Um, and so it's, it's a lot of program building right now, building consensus, figuring out um, with the U.S. government and the Department of Energy what that kind of program looks like, right? Um, you know, the academics that you want to pull in. There's a lot of private companies now that are investing in fusion. So what can you do with public-private partnerships? Um, what's the next big facility you have to build? Um, what are all of the challenges and gaps that we need to overcome? So that's kind of where a lot of the conversations are at the moment. So how do we capitalize on this breakthrough? And then furthermore, how do we maintain the leadership that the U.S. has here, right? Of course, if we can make fusion energy work, we want to deploy it across the world. Um, but in the meantime, the U.S. has a leadership role. We need to push on that. As always, there's great spin-out technologies and a lot of technology development that has benefits in all kinds of other ways. So we want to capitalize on that to make sure, you know, we stay competitive in the energy sector with fusion. Yeah. When you mentioned how does the U.S. maintain its space here, I have to admit, I immediately thought a little bit of the space race and how exciting it was in the 60s for the U.S. to be on the moon and now we have private companies going to the moon, right? Like so much has happened in such a short period of time with something that we once thought was absolutely impossible. Perhaps that's a silly comparison, but it's really exciting to see so many people invested in making sure that this is not only scalable, but a real long-term heavily invested solution. Yeah, no, that's actually a, it's a perfect comparison. It's, um, and the magnitude of the challenge is, is something akin to that as well, where you're going to need um, huge public investment, government investment, but also cooperation from all different industries as well, bringing their expertise. What kind of personnel needs are next steps? So how can people continue to invest themselves? Absolutely. This is a really diverse field and we need expertise of all types. I'm a plasma physicist, but I was actually trained as an aerospace engineer. But we also need material scientists, computational scientists, 
course, nuclear engineers. Um, we also need just a huge amount of just engineering expertise of, of all types, mechanical, electrical, civil, to, to bring together these facilities at all different levels, too. It's not just PhD scientists. We need a little bit of everybody to make this all happen. We are working now um, with public utilities to kind of get a better feel of like, you know, if we're if we're really going to, you know, plug fusion energy into the grid, the needs have to be driven by the, the potential customer as well, right? And we can learn from how the utilities actually, you know, generate electricity and all the expertises that they need there too, and then start getting a view, a look ahead of how do we then train up the future workforce that we will need in 10 to 20 years. You know, what can we do now to make sure we have the expertise when we when we need it? It's exciting to hear about already plugging in with utilities because you're already thinking from that again very theoretical perspective that nuclear fusion once was that now is an actuality. You're already thinking about the end goal and the end user. So it's really exciting to see this progression in a relatively short period of time when we think about how other energy sources have been deployed. This is quite exciting. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're very clear, um, you know, with the utilities, yes. with everybody, we don't know exactly when we can make this all happen, right? Um, it's very much a function of investment um, and, you know, how fast we're willing to move um, and commitment from, from government and utilities and private sector. But you have to look ahead, right? Um, you can't wait to demonstrate everything and then present it to somebody, you have to understand what the market is and what the needs are. And then if we're serious about energy equity um, and inclusion and justice, these conversations have to happen now. And it's good to kind of get that into everybody's brain. I hope you really enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Tammy Ma of Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory's National Ignition Facility. Again, this was a conversation that I was so humbled and honored to be able to host. I hope that you learned something. I felt like I learned so much during this conversation. And I also hope that this gave you a lot of perspective on where science is today, the value of what this means for science during our lifetime. I'm so, so excited about this news. I'm excited to continue learning about it and to be keeping up with the progress of this project. And I hope that this was a conversation that felt comfortable. I know that science sometimes can be a little intimidating, but I feel like Dr. Tammy Ma did an incredible job of breaking down complex topics in a really digestible way. So I hope that you learned something and you felt comfortable listening to all this information and that you can go and teach your friends about the nuclear fusion breakthrough. Of course, you can send this episode to anyone in your life that you think would enjoy it. I would really appreciate it. It helps me out a lot, helps the show grow. Make sure that you are subscribed to this podcast wherever you're listening to podcasts. And if you've stuck around this long, go ahead and leave me a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this. Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, wherever you want to find me. Also, my social links are down below. I really want to know what you thought of this episode, and I really want to keep in touch. Quick housekeeping, I mentioned this on the last episode, but I am still looking to hire someone to help me out with social media. I will have my email down in the show notes where it always is. If you are someone who's interested in digital marketing, if you're someone who has an interest in social media, go ahead and send me your resume or send me a quick blurb about yourself and some of your work, and I would love to be in touch, and I'll talk to you really soon. 
With that, thanks so, so much for tuning in to Eco Chic this week. I hope you enjoyed it and I look forward to seeing you next week. Have a good one. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.